Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast which, you know, usually slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy passage by passage, but not this episode. This is an interpolated episode brought up by discussions that I have had online recently with some people. I thought that it was important to address these issues that have come up at this point in Inferno. Let me just remind you where we are. We are down in the eighth circle of fraud, the giant eighth circle of fraud with its 10, oh, oops, told the plot, with its 10 subsets, the Malabolgia, the evil pouches. We have come down through a whole hassle of them and on down into the hypocrites and we are about to cross down into the seventh pouch almost not quite because this is our interpolated episode about issues that have been raised about comedy a specific issue how can i be an atheist and read dante ah there's a question for you so without any further ado let's just set out on it In order to set out on this journey of how to answer this question that came up in multiple DMs on Instagram and also in a conversation on Twitter, I'm going to have to go back to my own story. So please let me just go backwards to my own story and tell you that, yes, I have been to seminary. I studied Hebrew a great deal more than Greek, but I did study both Greek and Hebrew. You can't read the Bible without knowing Greek and Hebrew, the original languages, and Aramaic, but let's leave that aside for the moment. And I should tell you that in college, yes, I was an English major, but I was also a Greek major. Well, I was also a German major, but that's a whole different matter. So yes, I was a triple major, and yes, I was a Greek major, and yes, I went out of all of that into seminary. So yes, I have a great deal of religious training under my belt, but it's a long time ago. I am now 61 years old, yes, in fact, and that was all happening when I was, oh, utterly precocious, 19, 20, 21. I graduated from college when I was 19, so... Not to get too much into that story, but yes, a precocious young man in seminary. Let's just say that I do have a great deal of religious training behind me, and yet now I am no longer religious and no longer consider myself part of any religious tradition. In fact, I don't believe in God anymore, and I just want to say that up front so that we're very clear about it. I was clear about it in the early episodes of the podcast, but I want to make sure that I'm clear about it again, only so that you can see my cards as they're on the table. What does that mean for my thinking comedy is such a great work? Well, let's start out by saying Inferno is easy. I know, don't laugh at me. Inferno's not easy. It's very difficult. But I mean, Inferno is easy in terms of being non-religious because there are just so few saints and there's so little God running around Inferno. I mean, there are those saints, Lucy and probably the Virgin, and 
Beatrice, who's not a saint, but she's with the saints back in Canto 2 when they have their whole disquisition about how to save Dante. And then they come and get, they send Beatrice to go and get Virgil to go and save Dante. And yes, there is that heavenly messenger who comes across sticks, waving his hand in front of his face and saves them at the walls of Dis. But other than that, we don't have any angels coming and going. We don't have any saints walking around talking. Just wait till we hit Purgatorio and Paradiso. So what I'm saying to you is that Inferno is easy because it lacks those things. Even the references to God are few and far between in Inferno. And I have a sneaking suspicion that this is part of the reason that modern readers are attracted to Inferno and not to Purgatorio and Paradiso, because my irreligious stance will become increasingly difficult as the poem goes forward. It's easy to pull it off here in Inferno. It's harder and harder to pull it off in Purgatorio and Paradiso. But let me also lay this card on the table. Paradiso is my absolute favorite part of the poem. How can that be? Uh, Well, let me explain that. All art, Dante's art, I don't care what kind of Picasso's art, I don't care whose art you're talking about, all art operates inside a frame. That's how it works. And this particular poem, Comedy, has a medieval Thomistic frame around it, St. Thomas Aquinas, Thomistic frame around it. There is no getting away from that any more than there is getting away from Picasso's cubism, any more than there's getting away from Maurice Ravel's love of American jazz in his music, any more than there is getting away from counterpoint in Bach, any more than there is getting away from Lutheranism in Bach. All art operates in a frame. If I were to create art, it would operate in a certain framework. That's how art works. It's not pure. It's framed. It's only ideologues who think that art has to somehow be pure. And I'm not suggesting, and please don't think I'm suggesting, that Christianity is an impurity in comedy. No, it is woven into the very fabric of comedy. Well, I've changed my metaphors. I've gone from frame to weave. Okay, it's framed by Christianity. The poem is, or the Christianity is the very woof and warp of the fabric of comedy. You can't get away from it. I think a lot of people want to. They treat Inferno as if it's this, oh, Dante without the Christian part. They're not right to do that. Um, It started with Auerbach and his notions of how to read Dante. It continues on today. There are ways that Dante gets very heretical. There are ways that Dante anticipates secular culture. There are ways that Dante is pre-modern. But there are also ways in which Dante will never, ever get away from the very fabric of his being, which is the Christian message. Uh, Let me give you an example of this. I I lead a book discussion group, and we read Dostoevsky's Demons in three sessions in January and February. And if you know Dostoevsky, you know that Dostoevsky is always an overwhelming experience. His novels are always an overwhelming experience. I don't know whether he was or not, but his novels are always an overwhelming experience. And it was an overwhelming experience 
experience for many people to read it. And Demons is a particularly difficult novel from Dostoevsky about the rise of ideologues, about basically the rise of leftism in Russia. And there are even characters in Dostoevsky's Demons in, from 1871 that directly seem to predict Lenin and the coming communist revolution in Russia. But be that as it may, all of that lies in Dostoevsky. And yet at the same time, Dostoevsky himself is a fervent Orthodox Christian. And so in teaching Dostoevsky's demons to, in teaching, leading a discussion on Dostoevsky's demons, I had to talk a lot about Orthodox theology. I had to talk a lot about apophatic revelation and what that means and how the Orthodox Church holds very closely to a notion of apophatic revelation as opposed to the Western Church the kind of church that Dante's a part of, that holds to cataphatic revelation. What does that mean? Cataphatic revelation is direct revelation where I tell you, God tells you, I tell you, a prophet tells you, we tell you exactly what it all means. Apophatic revelation is, in fact, revelation in the negative. God is most expressed in God's absence, and it is the absence of God that pushes the believer toward the presence of God. It's a completely different way of thinking about revelation itself. Ultimately, in Orthodox theology, so much happens in front of the saint icon, but one of the things that happens in front of the saint icon, saint's icon in which you're praying not to in Orthodox theology, but through, toward God. You don't pray to the saints, you pray through the saints and through the icons. And one of the things you're supposed to realize is that the icon shows you that the saint's not there. And it is that absence which makes you reach farther for the presence of God. I had to explain so much of that in order to explain and understand Dostoevsky. Do I hold to any of that? No, I do not. Does Dostoevsky? Yes, he does. Does knowing that help you understand Dostoevsky? Absolutely. It is crucial to understanding Dostoevsky for you to have a basic grasp of Orthodox Christian theology. There's no reason to run away from it. It is part of the frame, the texture, the warp, the woof. I don't know. Give me, don't take any metaphor you want out of me. It's part of what makes Dostoevsky Dostoevsky, which brings me to the point about Dante, which is that we don't have to save Dante from Christianity. I don't have to save Dante from Christianity any more than I, as a gay man, need to save him from heterosexuality. I do not have to somehow insist that Dante must have been gay, as some critics are wont to do in the modern world, because they themselves are, in fact, yes, gay. I don't need Dante to be a reflection of me. I don't need Dante to be some kind of way that I look in a mirror and think, oh, well, look, I see a reflection of myself, and it's Dante, and Dante's great, so I must be kind of great. That's ridiculous. That's the way literature has been read for far too long. The, let, me, let me back up and say, literary analysis arises in Western tradition from Christian hermeneutics. That is, the way 
monks read and interpreted the Bible, the close reading they gave to their sacred text becomes the basis for how we in modern literary studies approach texts. Here's the problem. They approached a text believing it was divinely inspired, and so they needed to fix its incongruities. They needed to explain its ambiguities. They needed to make up for its deficits. They needed to fix it in whatever way they needed to fix it in order to justify it as a divine revelation. And that notion has carried into literary studies. I have to save George Eliot from her own ambiguities or how about just contradictions. In like manner, I have to save Dante from his own contradictions. I do not. I do not see the comedy as a sacred text. I do not ask it to be perfect. I do not ask it to be inspired. Rather, I ask it to arise out of Dante's imagination, given where his imagination is. And I am trying, from my perspective in the 21st century, to peer back through the mists and figure out why he's so interested in certain problems. And those problems I find fascinating intellectually, emotionally, psychologically. I find all of that fascinating because I am not such a fool as to think that I don't operate in a framework. Just because I'm not religious doesn't mean I don't have all kinds of suppositions and frameworks running around me. I'm not freed from any of that. I see through the lens of whatever I see through in the same way that Dante sees through his lens. And I hope we can get to the point in which his lens becomes understandable enough that we can see the art created in the way that he must create his art. That's not, I don't, I don't really need to excuse him from Christianity. I don't need to save him from Christianity. In fact, I need to settle him into it. I need to figure out how he operates inside of it so I can see the full extent of his art. That doesn't threaten me. That doesn't make me nervous. That doesn't make me uncomfortable. That simply says everybody works in a frame. Dante too. It also means I don't have to read the comedy as a mirror. I'm not trying to uncover the ways that the understanding in comedy can turn back so that I can now look at my world and go, oh, it's the same. Oh, how interesting. Sure, a billion times on this podcast, I have said to you, look, there's a kind of, let's say, hypocrisy that is politically dangerous that can lead to violence. Sure, I have tried over and over again to show you that Dante's notion of fraud is still operative in our modern world, of course, but I am not using the comedy as a mirror for my world, and I do not then have to think that the comedy allows me to then criticize the my world and its fraudulent ways. No, indeed, I can find parallels 
between them, but I don't need the comedy as a support for my ideas about the fraudulence of the world around me and the fraudulence of political figures around me. I find it interesting that we meet on common ground, but I'm not using the comedy to bolster my opinion about current fraudulent political figures across North America and Europe. Again, I don't need to read the comedy as a mirror. I don't need to save Dante from Christianity. I don't need to somehow pull the frame away from comedy and see it in some kind of pure state removed from religion. I don't need to do any of that because I am not threatened by its Christianity. Rather, I assume it's Christianity, and I also assume that given that this is its framework, <laughs> it is the greatest work of Western literature. See, I don't, I don't need the greatest work of Western literature to be written from my perspective. I don't need it to validate who I am. Rather, I need to see how it operates, understand that within limits, just like the limits I have, an artist was able to create this unbelievable cosmic landscape of the comedy and unbelievably pull off meta-literary and meta-textual and also just good storytelling all at the same moment. That's why the comedy's great. Having said all that, we are now ready to continue on to Canto 24. But I just thought it was really important to lay that out there because several people ask me online, how, how can you treat the Christianity so reverently? And by the way, these people who asked me this were themselves Christians. They say, how can you treat it so reverently when you say that you're not? I hope I've explained a little bit of that. I hope I've explained that it's not anything for me to fear or run away from. It's not anything for me to fight back against. I don't have to pull out my fisticuffs and go to battle with it. Sure, do I think Aquinas was right about things? No, I do not think Aquinas was right about things. Do I think that Dante thought Aquinas was right about things? Yes, of course I do. And do I think that Dante himself was even willing to take Aquinas and, here's the big one, warp Aquinas to meet his own poetics? Yes, I do. And do I think that understanding Aquinas helps us understand the comedy? Yes, I do. All of that is part of the deeper understanding of this most incredibly complex work. And if you think it was complex up to now, wait till you hear what comes next. Holy crow. Wait till you find out about Kentos 24 and 25 ahead. But to do that, you got to subscribe to this podcast rate it, like it. I would really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this rather self-indulgent episode in which I just wanted to put my cards on the table and explain to you how I operate inside this landscape. Because if you've been on this journey long enough that you've gotten all the way up to this episode, you may be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I thought he said way back there he didn't believe any of this. And yet he's, you know, he's quoting the gospels and he's throwing out St. Paul and he's throwing, how's he doing? I thought it was important just to clarify it and make sure that we were fundamentally clear that I don't need Dante to be right. I need him to be beautiful. And in fact, the comedy is quintessentially beautiful. More of that ahead. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.